I'm going to attempt to wrap a really nice bow around this. But earlier, there was a quote that you provided um, that said that when we are hungry or when we run out of food, that's I'll, I'll paraphrase it. So I'll say this, that when we're out of food, when we're hungry, that we'll eat the rich. And I see this as as a, as a restaurant. And it's if I if I'm in a restaurant and I'm not that hungry and I see the table next to me get food. I don't really care. I'm fine. I'm not that hungry. I'm sufficiently fed. But when I'm starving, and I've been in the restaurant for a few hours and you just walked in and they bring all the food to your table and not mine. That's when I'm upset. That's when I'm, I'm angry. That's when I'm really smelling and fi- smelling the food and figuring out like, hey, like something's not right here. And I think in terms of how we feel about billionaires, we're in the situation where a lot of us are starving. A lot of us don't have the basic resources, yet we see people do all of these extravagant things. And at what feels like my expense, and in some cases, it, it literally is like you work at Amazon and you can't use a restroom and you're not being paid enough and you can't pay your rent. But the guy you work for is in space and he has one hundred and ninety three <laughs> billion dollars. You will feel a certain type yeah, of way. That's, right? that's some real talk. Here, Kevin. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's like, like you got the money. Like literally, there's, literally. <laughs> I did the math. There's eight hundred thousand, close to eight hundred thousand people that work at Amazon. He can pay one hundred thousand dollars for every one and still have eighty billion dollars left. Like that's but that's a lot. Like you, I shouldn't have to suffer that way. But the reason I I would feel that way is because I don't have my basic needs met. And I think that's just a testament to how we should function as a society, that there should be a living wage. We should all be able to have food and clothes and our basic needs met and everybody would be fine. If you want to strive more and become a millionaire and all kinds of stuff, you, you you can do that, but you have to have those basic needs met. And when they don't, that's when you're going to start to feel this type of pressure, when you're going to see these type of complaints, and when you start to see society fracture in the way that it is. So I think the entire conversation is about why do you feel this way? I feel this way because X, Y, and Z, these basic needs aren't being met. I can't get a house. People are overbidding. Like, that's that's the issue. And we have to come back to those issues and figure out how do we solve them? Is it the elimination of billionaires? I don't think that's necessarily the answer. Is it more taxation? Is it better funding? All you know, It's a combination of those things. But the, the premise of it, the answer to that is, as a society, every single person should be able to have their absolute most basic needs met. And until that is is solved, then we're, we're going to continue to have these types of conversations and this type of angst against the very wealthy among us. start the conversation, I would like to invite you to become a member of the Money Hungry community. Recording, developing, and working on these shows is an act of love, but I would also love for some support to help with the cost to create this content for you. Become a member of the Money Hungry community for $7 a month. Community members will gain access to members-only interviews, VIP access to upcoming events. Go to buymeacoffee.com backslash Mitch Loves Money backslash membership, or click on the link in the show notes to learn more. If you love the envelope system, but are completely freaked out about losing your cash, Cube Money 
may be the tool for you. It's a digital app paired with a Visa credit card. Deposit your money into an FDIC insured account and organize your money into the different cubes you would like to use. Keep your money straight. I love this app. I do need to disclose that I am a proud affiliate of this app and may receive some compensation if you interact with the link on my page. I love digital entrepreneurship and sharing how to create and sustain equitable, passion-led businesses for POC and allied creators. They're all entrepreneurship-related information on my website and podcast, The Brand Building Lab. Go to brandbuildinglab.com to learn more. If you want to know how to market your project, if blogging is dead, or should you start a podcast, The Brand Building Lab is where I'll share my perspective and advice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Michelle is Money Hungry. Today, we're going to talk about eating the rich. No, seriously, we're not going to talk about eating the rich, but kind of touching on some some of the sentiments and some of the anti-billionaire sentiments that are starting to percolate quite a bit in social media and in just common discourse. In fact, before I hopped on this call with my two guests who will introduce themselves in a second, I was at the coffee shop as I am typically. And my barista, my favorite barista, one of one of them was like, the thing with billionaires is if you inherit the money sooner or later, you're going to have to walk over people in order to grow your money in order for you to exceed your wealth or the inherited wealth you already have. You're going to have to step on some people. That was a sentiment that she shared with me. And I was like, huh, huh, maybe you should be on the show with us too. But anyway, we're going to get into it today. I'm super excited. Sandra, if you could introduce yourself first, that would be wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you, Michelle. It is so good to be here. And this is a timely topic. I am Sandra Davis. I am a financial coach and educator. I have a master's degree in financial planning and I'm a behavior specialist. So that means that I focus more on what people do with money after I know what they know about money. I'm located in Northern California. um, And so there's some privilege that goes with that, right? We've got a lot of opportunity out here to have these kinds of conversations. And the thing I most focus on is how do we align our values and our choices. So that's more about me than you ever wanted to know, I suspect. No, we wanted to know that. (laughs) Kevin, what about yourself? My name is Kevin Matthews II. I'm the founder of Building Bread and the author of From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence. I have a very interesting background, both in the financial space and just in the geography space. So born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was known as Black Wall Street, spent some time in New York City and saw a lot of things related to billionaires, technology, money, and also poverty. And I currently live out of Raleigh, North Carolina. This isn't a question that I sent to you guys, but when I say the word billionaire, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Actually, nothing for me, to be honest. I don't necessarily equate billionaire status with anything in particular, but that was a learned thing for me. I used to have what we call, and I still have, what we call money scripts. That's what we believe about money. And often when we have those money scripts, they come from either childhood, you know, generational passed down. But the thing is, is that it's all partially true. So now with the work that I've done, now if you had asked me that 20 years ago, my reaction would have been very visceral right? That it's a bad thing, that billionaires are bad. And so I can understand this current feeling that's happening right now. And I know as we get into it, we'll say more, but now 
because I understand more deeply and I understand money scripts and how they play out, I'm really neutral about that word in particular. For me, I think the first thing that that comes up is is ownership. I think anytime, most times rather, when someone hits that billionaire status, it's, I've noticed it's because they own some business. Like they started something, they own a production company, they took ownership in this sort of economy versus what most of us are are taught, right? Like most of us say, yeah, work a nine to five, you get the money, you invest the money, and then you you kind of go about your way. But I've noticed those who tend to hit this mark because they owned a, a Fenty or in the case of LeBron James, he owns a production company. Um, so I've just kind of seen like it's it's really an ownership that propels you to those higher those higher levels of, of wealth. When I was talking about this episode with my mom, like I, I flew back in yesterday from out of town and this was kind of on my mind. And I was like, mom, um, we're going to talk about billionaires. And she went in a totally different location in terms of content than I was thinking about. But then I was like, whoa, that's actually something that we need to bring up. And one of the things that's really interesting about billionaires and the common discourse around them is kind of the history of billionaires in the United States or very wealthy people. And I feel like there's this weird, like deja vu situation occurring. There's this enormous amount of wealth, but a backdrop of enormous amount of poverty. And to, to be a little more clear in the twenties and thirties, where all that wealth was being generated and developed and grown in the U S there were a lot of people who were outside of the ability to access that wealth. And I think that now when we're having these conversations about billionaires, that is kind of the same thing where people are like, we can't even imagine being a millionaire, let alone a billionaire. And what the hell is going on with this? So if you could touch on this idea of access related to perception in terms of billionaire wealth and just what you think about that. I would love to hear your thoughts. Appreciate what Kevin just said, because I think that we don't often go to the place of ownership. I just want to remind us that the concept of eat the rich was founded in income inequality. So the entire statement is when the people shall have no more to eat, they will eat the rich. So it's not just eat the rich. It's when the people shall have no more to eat. And that was by Rousseau in 1793. And so I think one of the reasons this is coming up again is that people are feeling this tremendous amount of poverty with the tension of access. And because more people do have access, because more people do have ownership, there's kind of this push-pull. I love the idea of billionaire, but it's not really accessible to me. But is is that really true? And so I think we're finding this tension between are billionaires good for society? right? Not just on a personal note, but are they good for society? And, you know, as we go into the conversation, I have some ideas about that, but I think that that's where the tension lies. And it it gets back to what I just said about money scripts. Both things are true. Both things are true. And if we can begin to hold that both things are true, we can decide where do we want to be in that reality? I think it's, it's an interesting question. I think it definitely seems to, to pop up when there's this income inequality, which is which is rampant, that's that's something that is is easily pointed out, right? But I think 
statistically, we've also seen more millionaires than we ever have. And that's been a growing number. We've seen more investors on, on all levels of the income stream started to invest a lot more. And that's been able to help out within the last year or so. So it's just an, an interesting thing. I do totally agree that it is when things are on fire, when people don't have, you know, don't have anything to eat, we tend to look at these these anomalies and say, well, wait a minute, how does this person have $193 billion sitting here where I can't pay my student loans? There's something messed up with the system. And I think that's where we start to to turn our our anger in that direction when these things start to happen. Do you think that billionaires even have an obligation to better society? And I'm going to say that I am somewhat neutral as well on this notion of billionaires in society. One of the really interesting things that I've noticed is how billionaires show up in pop culture. So I write romance novels. I read them. I love romance. It's like one of my fun, guilty pleasures. In romance, there is a thing, the whole millionaire trope. That actually in the last three to five years has totally gone away. It's now the billionaire trope. It is no longer, you don't find authors writing her millionaire lover from Spain. Like that's not a title anymore. It's billionaire. And so I think that there's this low grade thing happening across the board um, that a lot of people are noticing, but aren't able to articulate uh, within like the the bigger picture of what's going on with wealth inequality in the United States. I walk by, you know, I live in a very wealthy state. I live in a wealthy town. There are homeless camps in my town. This is new for us. It is traumatizing to see. It's very scary. And I think that's the other thing too. It's like, there's all this wealth. And why is it that Jeff Bezos is sending his, you know, his peen up to space versus helping people. And why is it that we're hearing stories of his workers allegedly having to pee into bottles while working? Like is, is sending a peen into space, guys, I'm talking about the rocket that looks like a peen that he designed. Is that helping society or is that tapping into this narrative that the rich will leave the poor, right? The poor will inherit the earth, <laughs> uh, which is burning as we speak. What are your thoughts on this? This ho- whole idea of do they are they obligated to better society? Yeah. So two things happened in 1970. Now I know most of y'all weren't around then, okay, but I want to just bring this to your attention because you probably heard about it in one way or another. Milton Friedman, uh, an economist, some of us call him Uncle Milty, said the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. There is no response. The quote ends there. No responsibility to the public or society, strictly to the shareholders. Now that's where that idea of trickle down comes from, right? Now this happened in 1970s called the Friedman Doctrine. In 1970, Gil Scott Heron, poet and uh, brother extraordinaire, also wrote Whitey on the Moon. And he's talking about his sister Nell being bitten by a rat. He's talking about can't pay doctor bills. He's talking about rent going up, taxes, daily life. So there's always been this juxtaposition between these two realities. Now, I think one of the things that, that, that you're talking about now is that what are we, this going from millionaire to billionaire out here in California, we had a house 
go, not we personally, not me personally, but there was a house in my neighborhood. Now I'm in a small working class town in Northern California across the bay from San Francisco. I was born and raised in San Francisco. The home I grew up in is now $3.5 million. That's the home I was raised in. And let me tell you this, my mother in 1975, I said, you know, much later, I said, well, so mom, why did you give up our home? She sold our home in 1975. She said, I couldn't afford the $300 a month mortgage. And so the reason we're having, in my view, the reason we're having this conversation from millionaire to billionaire is things like that. We had a house here in the Pinole area where I am that sold for 1 million above asking. Whoa. Asking was already above a million. And I'm not talking about an affluent area. I'm not talking about in San Francisco. That home went for 1 million above asking price. So I think that it's all relative, right? So, so now the conversation about billionaire, uh, you know, and to Kevin's point, and I think Kevin's absolutely right about this, people are investing in ways they never had before. People are owning. Young folks are doing things that my generation would have never thought possible. Never. And, and so I am absolutely proud of y'all and love watching what people are doing. And I would say, to what end? Sigmund Freud was, it was said to have said he would rather treat the rich than the poor because the rich already know that money won't solve their problems. Mm. Kevin, how do you follow that? It's, it's always hard to follow. I, <laughs> I took a losing position. Sandra was like, Woo! <laughs> But I, I will... I will say this. So I, I didn't, I don't think I mentioned the very beginning, but by, by definition, right. I am an economist. I got my, my first degree from Hampton in economics and to a degree, I do agree that it is a business's responsibility to enrich its shareholders. However, I think the best and most efficient way to do that is through public education and investing in the workers and the quality of people that work for you. The way I see it is, and especially a case of Jeff, Jeff Bezos, if you paid your workers more, if they are more relaxed, if they feel taken care of, they're going to stay with the company longer, you're going to save more money and you're gonna have a better product at the end of the day. One great example of this was Costco last year, they paid their workers extra and they made that payment permanent and shareholders got a special $10 dividend for every share that they owned and everybody won. Workers were paid more. Costco made more money than they ever had um, in their history at that point in time. And investors were also rewarded. And we see that those who have the best employees, the employees that are most loyal, the employees that have more, more fun and they're taken care of tend to stay longer. You don't have those retention costs and generally everyone does do better. But also in the case of an Amazon, they hire the most MBAs in the country. That means that it, they have benefited, Jeff specifically has benefited from public education. You benefit from having people uh, become educated. Therefore, you should invest in the school system. You should help fix the education gap. So those, all those things are important. I'll lastly say that economics is a very, very tough thing because I could say, right, he should make sure that all 800,000 workers at Amazon get six figures easy. And he would still be a billionaire if he did that, by the way, which is ridiculous. However, if he did do that, then you see situations like New York, like the Bay Area, places in all across the, the West Coast, even Denver, where you see these explosions in cost of living. So while they should be paid more, and I would absolutely agree, 
infusing so much money so quickly can also have some adverse effects. And we have to figure out how do we measure and properly pay people the way they should, a living wage is something I obviously support, but how do we do that in a way that doesn't over-accelerate things and hurt people, which we've seen in certain areas and pockets of the country? Well, I'm gonna ask the question again with, with some examples. Do you think billionaires have an obligation to better society? And in the past, we had people like Rockefeller who was, you know, like people are how they are, but Rockefeller created the Sanitation Commission, the Rockefeller Sanitation Commission, which basically eradicated hookworm in the Southern US. Vanderbilt's, I think one of his sons, not the original Vanderbilt who didn't care about philanthropy, but the original, one of the sons invested quite heavily in, in the YMCA and created the Metropolitan Opera. And Carnegie stands out actually, who built 3000 libraries of which we still use today. There's actually an amazing library near my neighborhood that has a, a gorgeous fresco of uh, basically Excalibur. Like it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And that was one of the libraries built during that time. And so I think that with these billionaires now, I feel like there are two camps, right? There's the ones who are like, we're going to space, man, booyah. And then there are the, the other ones who are doing these, creating these works, these long lasting monuments to not only themselves, but to others by helping uplift them along the way. So I guess when I say, do they have an obligation to, to better society? I, I wanna push, do they? Or can they just make their money and go about their business? Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up two great examples. The example I want to bring in, often when we think about wealth, we think about billionaires here in in the U.S. The wealthiest man that ever lived was Mansa Musa. And and to Kevin's point, and and this is one of the, the things I love about being on a call with brilliant people, Kevin just outlined exactly what can go wrong if we go too far in one direction. Now, I know the fact that I'm a Libra has me trying to keep a balance, right? (laughs) But, But hey, it's deeper than that. Mansa Musa left such an impression on Cairo that he passed out gold. He handed out gold during his time there, so much so that it caused the price of gold to plummet, wrecking the economy. Right. So so to Kevin's point, the question becomes, what is the obligation? So there's a couple of ways to look at it. Right. We can tax people more and then trust our government to fulfill societal needs. Now, keep in mind, the government is supposed to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. Say amen, Kevin. I know you're an economist, but that's what the government is. <laughs> I supposed do. To, I agree. <laughs> right. That's what the government is supposed to do. So now if we're relying on the billionaires to fulfill that role, now we're at the whims of what the billionaires believe is most valuable in society. Mm. Now, the, the rub there is, okay, so look out here in San Francisco, Facebook brother put a whole bunch of money into what used to be San Francisco General Hospital. I happen to have been born in that hospital, a hospital that if people have a choice, they don't go to that hospital. So now it's got the bump up, right, with the Zuckerberg money, the Zuckerberg Chan money. And with that has also come some degree of different access. So once they put money into these things, is the access doing what was intended? And I think that's an important piece. So the YMCA, the YWCA, all of that's wonderful. And are they in the neighborhoods where 
people who wouldn't ordinarily have access now do have access. And I'm not, I'm not judging whether it is or isn't. I'm just noting that once a billionaire says, okay, I'm going to invest X, Y, Z, they are also choosing, right? It's a donor advised. They're choosing how that plays out. And do we want that to be society as well? So, so where if the more money I have, the better I can make the communities I care most about. Well, what about the community at large? So I would say, yes, there is responsibility, but I think that's responsibility that we all hold, not just billionaires. And, you know, some would say to whom much is given, much is required. One of the tricky things that I think about in what you've just pointed out is the U.S. government is notorious for not really doing the one thing that you mentioned, which is to kind of care for society at at large. And right now we're in the midst of a global pandemic. We see how things have gone. We're fortunate in that we did have an administration change or else basically we'd all be dead. And I'm being a little facetious, but not really. But it is clear that government is managed by men and women who have their own interests and their own ideas about what is important. And depending on who that is, depends on what the policies will be. And we're finding yet again, even with a democratically led administration, there there are certain things, certain levels of urgency that aren't being addressed. So for me, in terms of this conversation and societal good, one of the conclusions that I've come to is we, the U.S., needs a federal level mandate against unhoused Americans. And what I mean by that is helping unhoused Americans get back into homes and to be safe. The cities are clearly unable to manage this problem. Like we, we're, we've gotten beyond where cities can manage the problem. Now, billionaires can and, and millionaires can come in and be like, hey, we've got ideas, right? But those ideas can only impact so many people. And so I guess what I'm saying is the government will only do so much and it's only equipped to do so much. And it's, at, it's held hostage basically to the ebb and flow of each election cycle. So I think part of what's frustrating for a lot of people is we see that problem And then we see the billionaires and we think, well, maybe, you know, their whim would help us. You know what I mean? I wanted to chime in there because I think we're in a weird space where I think, like, yes, there are problems with some billionaires, right? But like, we're in a weird space where we are our own worst enemy. So yeah, I I went to Denver not too long ago for a few hours. I want to say longer, but I didn't. Um, and I saw those those homeless like camps. And I've lived in New York where I've seen homeless on the train and, and just in the street. And I've worked for the city of New York. And what I found, and while I didn't work in the Department of the Homeless, I did find that it wasn't necessarily the government's fault. It was more of what we call NIMBYs, not in my backyard, where the city would actually bought out an entire hotel and say, look, we want to house the homeless here. But everywhere we tried to do that, or the city tried to do that, the actual neighbors who lived in that community said no. Well, if I can't move them anywhere within the city, because everyone who lives there says no, then what am I supposed to do as, as a city, right? And then we just turn and look at billionaires and say, well, it was their fault. And again, while there are problems on both sides, it's 
you know, the same problem we're having with the uh, with COVID now is not necessarily the government's response. We have vaccines, but it's people who just don't want to do it. Right. And it's like, here we are back in the same situation where we are our own worst enemies. We could have locked down, had masks, everybody got vaccinated and been done with this thing. But that's not the case. We could have built homeless shelters, t- taking care of, of, of those who are who don't have homes now and been done with the problem of homelessness. However, it's the, the NIMBYs. I don't want a homeless shelter in my school district or next door to me. I don't want to ma- wear a mask because I want to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, those are the, the problems that we have to be on the same page as a society. Do billionaires have a, a responsibility to better society? Yes, they do. Because you use the systems that, that are here to allow you to amass that wealth. But also on society's part, we do have to do a few things. I, I want to say like pull up, you know, from the whole bootstraps thing, but like in general, if we want to solve it, we all do have to pay a cost. I think that's the thing that we don't realize is that we do want to solve some of these problems. You might have to wear a mask. You do want to solve these problems. You might have to build a homeless shelter across the street from you. That's they have to live somewhere. Right. So I think we have to come together and say, like, this is what we want to do and that we all have to pay a price Well, it seems like we're looking for a solution where no one pays anything and no one has to like bear or look at the problem at all. And I think that's the biggest the biggest issue there. Mm. Uh, that Michelle, that was your soundbite right there. That was good. Right that there. was your soundbite right there. Woo! I mean, and the point is, and, and this is where I want to be clear. There have been things that the, the elders before you all have done that we thought were going to work. And we ran into exactly what Kevin just described, right? And so what, are, what can your generation, what are you all going to do that is different than what we've done? Because trying to do the same stuff we tried to do, frankly, didn't work. I'm going to tell you, I spent 10 days in Cuba. And, you know, Cuba is known for, uh, you know, the socialist society. They're known for uh, uh, what some might feel is is uh, unfair blocking of people and their personal opinions. But I'll tell you what, people knew they could go and get health care. People knew that they could get an education. People knew that uh, that that they were, were going to be able to, um, at, at a minimum, have a place that they could live. Now, were there homeless in Cuba? Absolutely. Did we experience that? Absolutely. And one of the things that we have to consider is if the government is paying for things like education, healthcare, and housing, if the things that the government can control were controlled in a way that everyone had access, would the the sacrifices that Kevin just described, might we all be willing to make a bit more of a sacrifice because we understand it's a lift that we're all doing together. And I do think that there's, there's wisdom to that. You know, I I don't know, I don't know how y'all going to do it. I mean, this is probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Right. But, but how, how can we take what we know and what we've learned from past situations and, and do something differently? I have to say, I don't think the race to billionaire status is going to be the answer. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I also don't think it's going to be the answer. And that's the only thing that makes me a bit nervous about what I'm seeing. And Michelle, what you opened us up with is that, you know, there's this idea that it's either, hey, why not? Let's try to get at it or being a billionaire is bad. I think we've got to find that middle path that gets us to something that's a bit more holistic for all of us because ain't none of us getting out of here alive. So we're all in it together, whether we like it or not. What do you guys think about the billionaire space race between Branson Bezos and Musk? I, I find it very fascinating because 
I think very wealthy people just like we all to a certain degree want a monument to our our time here on earth but these are these are different monuments right for people like myself who are into star trek and firefly and battlestar galactica i'm gonna be honest this whole billionaire space race does have me going down a weird dystopian rabbit's hole especially given all of the things going on with global warming uh at the time that we're recording i just flew into my town uh the day before and we had the world's worst air i have never seen anything like this in my life i hope to never have this experience again right and basically because of the wildfires in california all the air blew across the west going east and i'm bringing up the space race because a lot of people are like are the rich gonna leave us like that movie with that cute little fat robot and we've got this happening with the backdrop of active fascism in our country and so when we talk about billionaires, I think in the moment that we're in, we cannot ignore that we have an active fascist movement and that there are billionaires who are invested in us not moving forward, especially people of color or people who are allied, but who aren't what, you know, nationalists want in their ranks. So I, I want you to kind of talk about this space race and responsibility from that angle. And when I emailed you guys, I did share kind of a little tidbit on the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma and how they benefited from people taking opioids and the opioid crisis and how we have literally a generational impact because they said yes to a thing that basically destroyed a lot of families. What are your thoughts? I'll start with the space racing and kind of work backwards. I find the space race extremely annoying. Like it's one of the dumbest fascinations that we have. Now, if you got the money in space, you I, you go. I really don't care. And <laughs> you know, like I, it don't need to be on the news. It doesn't need to take up my timeline. It goes somewhere with that. And the reason why is because it's a one. It's it's stupid because they're being celebrated for doing something that we did years ago like we put somebody on the moon already so what you went halfway to the moon and back i don't we that you haven't done anything new that we have not seen before yes you're one person and not the government but again you're not breaking new ground in in my view so the entire fascination with that is is utterly ridiculous to me i don't care which one of these rich people get to space and to the moon first people already been there it's there's been dozens of people who have already done it so get in line um so there's there's that but i think you know, when it comes to the Sackler family and others who have really hurt people, I think we should be very careful in painting with a broad brush when it comes to to money and um, money and ethics. And also, I'll, I'll put it this way. So, for example, like Sackler family is trash. Like that's that's flat out. Like nobody's <laughs> no one's gonna disagree there. But right. I don't think it's smart, like you were saying on Twitter earlier, that people the minute Rihanna hit a billion, now she's a terrible person. Like, well, hold on. You know, is it was it the nine hundred million dollar mark? She was fine, and the minute she crossed over one dollar, she was then automatically bad. I think that same level of logic also applies to people who are in poverty because people already assume, well, oh, if you're impoverished, that you know you're lazy, you're a bad person. You 
you welfare queen or whatever, like whatever terrible associations people make. Like that's the exact same train of logic. I think we want to be more nuanced in in where, you know, Rihanna and maybe LeBron or Oprah, they may be fine, right? The Sacklers and others who fall into that category, they're trash. Um, I don't think we should just say, based on your level of wealth, we now assign you these traits of morals and ethics because it also goes in the opposite direction as, we, as we've seen. And I don't think that's, that's the direction that we should continue to go into. So Kevin, this is why I bought your book, sweetheart. When you talk about a topic, you go in. So, so, so I, I just, yeah, this is, this is why, look, if y'all haven't bought the book, buy the book. So, so this is what I want to say about that. Money scripts, what we believe about money, our unconscious thoughts about money come from all kinds of places, our, you know, how we were raised, all of those things. Money worshipers believe that things will be better if they have more. Money avoiders believe that money is bad, right? And, and when you have a belief like that, uh, you know, to the point Kevin just made, you're going to paint people with a broad brush. One of the things that I do in workshops is I'll ask the question, who has done more for society, Mother Teresa or Bill Gates? Mm. So what are a couple of the things that you think I hear? I'd like to hear from both of you. Kevin, what do you think I hear when I say, who did more for society, Mother Teresa or Bill Gates? What are some of the things you think people say? I feel like people say Mother Teresa did more, but if you had to ask, if you ask me, I actually think Bill Gates did more. So Not, say, say more about why Bill Gates. So I think about like the things I would not be able to do without Microsoft Word and Excel. Then I think about like the Gates Millennium Scholarship thing that he did. That I know put a bunch of my friends through school without debt. I wasn't one of those, <laughs> but yeah. you know, I think about you know, I think about stuff like that, and then all his other philanthropic efforts um, around. Like I think he does something about with medicine and cures in in Africa, like malaria. It, he, malaria, yeah. So like those are the immediate things. But I'm thinking like. I wouldn't have made it throughout grad school and none of that without Microsoft Word. Without your computer, right? Okay, Michelle, <laughs> right. how about you? Michelle, well, which one would you say? It's interesting because I've heard bad things about Mother Teresa, actually, similar to bad things that I've heard about Gandhi. So I think it's very contextual. It depends on what you know about the people because they're human, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as well as with Gates, it's, it's interesting because they had the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I'm not sure... They still call it that after the divorce. I feel like because of scope, probably the Gates Foundation. However, I've seen a lot of blowback on him as well, because we also attach morality to people's works. And also we are a little, I don't call it paranoid. Paranoid is a strong word, but there is a concern around his access to medical Mm-hmm. distribution mm-hmm. and and his motivations around it especially right now so i'm going to say him but but with an asterisk exactly so here's my point something that is seemingly a very easy this or that right look at the nuance some people felt bill gates but only because of his philanthropic so what if he what if he had only done Microsoft and never did the philanthropic stuff? Would they still feel that way? Some people would say Mother Teresa. And then people would say, well, if she had more money, maybe she could have done more good. Then there's the trouble part. We, we know that that's there. But so my point is, whatever your money script is, you're going to lean, for the most part, in that direction. So if you think that 
money solves things, you know, back to Freud's conversation. The reason he likes to treat rich people is because they already know money doesn't solve everything, right? And so it just depends on perspective. And so when we're listening to all of this now, when we're looking at the space race, when we're looking at uh, uh, homes going uh, for sale above million dollar, the asking price, we have to wonder, what does it mean for us as an entire society? So I, I tend to agree with Kevin. I was bothered to hear all of that. I don't think it added any value. I do understand their personal choice to leave a legacy. I would have rather seen that money used as something that was more beneficial, even if they, they did it for our space programs. Maybe they believe that that's what they were doing. I think that one of the things that we have to be cautious about is, you know, with, with Rihanna, you know, did that $1 more change who she is? If we want to say poverty is not a character flaw, is wealthy a character flaw? And so I, I just think it's really important for us to make sure that when we're spewing opinions, that we understand that our, those opinions are deep, steeped in our own money scripts and what we believe about money. I want to get a little more nuanced in the conversation and ask you this question. What do you think people consider the societal obligations of black and brown billionaires? And what happens when they show that they're human? And I think about Robert Smith, who is actually from Colorado, grew up in Denver, and he got in trouble for that, that tax situation, $171 million worth of tax. I don't even know what he was doing. But then he also paid off the student loans of not only the graduating class at Morehouse a couple of years ago, but it, their parents, that, that, that was that one single gesture uplifted so many families and created an um, enormous amount of opportunity. But I do think because black and brown people are so often outside of financial growth situations that billionaires and millionaires in particular have a lot of obligations placed on them. Similar to the conversation that I see online about, we, I wish that people would stop normalizing relatives paying for their other relatives and black, black and brown families when they're the ones who've made it. And I feel like there's so much more to that. So what are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So the first thing I appreciate you call, not calling that the black tax. It infuriates me when I hear people call um, support for family members, the black tax. It's a completely different thing. I understand where it comes from. It's just something that we should not be normalizing. Uh, I also feel differently uh, about whether it should be normalized and having traveled to, you know, many places around the world, it is not abnormal for family members to provide support for other family members, particularly when a group of family members may have been the one who, the ones who got together to launch that person being in that position. The problem isn't, in my view, and of course, y'all got to remember, I'm 60, so I have a different perspective. The problem isn't that I was responsible for my mom's financial situation until she passed away a couple of years ago. The problem was people didn't understand that what I was doing was trying to build wealth for the family. Mm. So I didn't mind that my family would come to me. I didn't mind that my mother was my dependent from the time that I was 15 years old. That, would, that didn't bother me. What bothered me was they didn't understand what I was trying to accomplish when I said no to things. 
right? When I said, no, I'm not going to be able to fund that. They didn't understand what I was trying to accomplish when I recognized that help isn't always help. That when I've paid someone's electricity bill for the third time, I am now funding their bad behavior and that's not helping them. So that's the thing that's problematic for me. I don't have a problem with building a family emergency fund where we all have something to draw on uh, if something goes wrong. Now, for me, I think that Black billionaires or very black or wealthy people have to move stealthily because, number one, we live in a society that is uncomfortable with Black people achieving at that level. Now, the rub is that means they may not be in a position where people can see and then aspire to be like them. But the fact is, when you look at some of the wealthy folks in Black America, it seems as though whenever there's some effort to to do something that uplifts our people, it all often comes with the corresponding tearing down. And I think that uh, we have to be cautious and and mindful of the things that we do in that space. Do I think Black billionaires owe something to Black people? I think that all of us owe something to each other. And if I have more, is it my inclination personally, Sandra Davis, to give more? Absolutely. And that giving is also attached to how are we going to uplift each other together? So I know that's probably not the answer that you wanted to hear, but that's how I feel about it. Robert Smith got in trouble for something that his people should have handled. When you think about the wealthy black folks who have gotten into tax trouble, I'm going to tell you, they're not sitting there doing their 1040s. Someone is failing them. Now, are they supposed to be making sure that it's right? Absolutely. But the fact is, how do they know? How do they know if they're not tax professionals? How do they know? So, you know, uh, other people get in in tax trouble all the time. Things are magnified when they're looking at Black folks, particularly Black folks who are high achievers. I would say that the rules should necessarily be different and that generally they aren't. So like, you know, I feel like just like I feel like um, Mackenzie Bezos, the the former spouse of Jeff Bezos, she donated more than forty million dollars to to uh, to HBCUs across the country, and that was I'm sorry, it was well over that that amount. I think forty million or so is what Hampton got by itself, and she she donated to several HBCUs. But like I think every billionaire, black and otherwise, should be doing that because we get the biggest return in society when we invest in in people of color and when we invest in, in women. And I think, again, for the betterment of society, we should all be doing that. I don't think there should be special rules for, for certain folks and than others. But I'll also say that I think the responsibility of black billionaires is to do what other billionaires have already done in that they are helping out their immediate friends and family. So for example, when I look at LeBron James and his friend, Rich Paul, who is now the most powerful agent in the NBA, he set him up to be extremely successful the same way that that Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg set up their co-founders and friends to be extremely successful. Um, I look at Jay-Z, who was also a billionaire, who helped Rihanna become a billionaire and who helped Kanye become a billionaire, even though Kanye is problematic, right? Um, (laughs) So, you know, I think it's, you you help your immediate circle, right? And that circle helps the immediate circle and that, that you know, hopefully compounds. Um, I would love, just like, you know, LeBron started started a school that is, that's doing well in his hometown. I think everybody should do that with the right means. So I think, you know, they should continue doing those efforts 
so far as they are um, helping those in in their situation and enriching both financially and educationally and, and in terms of resources um, in the same way that others are. And I don't think that the rules have to be different. I think they are doing that in some ways with, you know, Robert being one example, LeBron being another, um, but they should continue doing that type of work. Cause I think that's, what's going to make the biggest difference. If you were a billionaire, what would you do? Oh, we, okay. The first thing is, and I've had this dream since I was in my thirties, what I would do is I would have elder communities all over the country and what that community would look like is that I would buy the equivalent of like a city block and the housing would be around the outside and there'd be a community center on the inside and people would have, they could have their choice to have meals together or they could be, uh, you know, they'd have a, a, a smaller scale kitchen, right? And there would be um, healthcare on the premises, there'd be childcare on the premises, so that, and, and people could get the support that they need, so they could age in place as they got older and needed more support, and the people who work there could bring their children to the daycare center on the property, right, so there'd be a system right there, and the elders who are living there would be, uh, ch- they could choose to work in the daycare centers if they wanted to, they could choose to work in the kitchens if they wanted to, and I would have those all over the country. What about you, Kevin? There's a, a lot of stereotypical answers I could say, you know, buy my mama house, <laughs> pay out my student loans, <laughs> all things I would <laughs> probably do. <laughs> and, would, you uh, do that, would you do that for your auntie grandma too? Uh, oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, buy, buy a sports team um, and all these things I, I probably would, would do if I came into that type of money. I think though, in terms of what I would really want to see, um, I would probably fully fund as many HBCUs as possible. I don't think they receive the the proper amount of funding that their counterparts get. So I, I'd start with my own. I start with Hampton and, and move down the list. But I would also put some serious efforts into really rebuilding Black Wall Street. Yes, my book is about that. But also, you know, I think in terms of reparations, I would even though it wasn't me, clearly, and my family was affected, I would I would give reparations to people who are descendants of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I would also make efforts to really revitalize that part of, of Tulsa. I think, uh, now I think I've seen gentrification already start. I would, I would own that and make sure that the community has ownership in that. I would bolster the the only HBCU in the state, Langston University, and its satellite campus in Tulsa to a, a level that Stanford is funded at or the level of Harvard is funded at so that we can really claw back and get attract the right talent in Tulsa and make sure that those who have been there are, are able to benefit in the way that I, I think makes more sense, more equitable sense, and to try to really close that gap um, as much as we can. Yesterday, or was it the day before, we drove by Fisk and I was like, oh my God, we drove by Fisk. It was, it was a really beautiful thing. And I was so excited to see Fisk University. But for me, none of my answers should su- surprise you, but maybe they will. One of the huge issues that I've noticed is just lack of access to the outdoors. That is actually an ongoing issue in Colorado. It doesn't matter if you're black, brown or whatever. If you don't have a car, it's very difficult to access the mountains and do all the things that we're known for enjoying. And so I would fund 
different programming, specifically just teaching people how to be safe in the outdoors and have the staffing for that. But the transportation piece, I know people here in the state doing that type of work on a small scale. He's working with the foundation at Lincoln Hills, which is one of the westernmost community spaces for people of color back in the day. So out east, there was Idlewild. In Colorado, we have Lincoln Hills, and it's still a space that's being used. And so just really getting people into nature. Um, the other thing I would do is pay for people to have child care. One of the things that really just just impacted my life, as well as what I saw last year is, and now, is how women are really, and American women and women of color are put into these situations where they can't do things because they're unable to safely care for their children. And that is so problematic as we grapple with what is sure to be a massive eviction crisis in the next two months. It's been, you know, the moratorium's been ex expanded. Um, and so childcare is a huge thing. I was very fortunate. My mom didn't need childcare for me. Like she was always able to put me in YMCA, which was why I was, I was so interested and intrigued by that billionaire Vanderbilt putting money into YMCA. YMCA really changed my life. And then finally, just how can I pay for as many people as possible to go to, to either higher education or vocational schools for free? I would just pay for it. Just, just have it be free. So those would be the things that I would really focus on. I would love for you to leave with a final thought about billionaires and why you think they've pissed people off. <laughs> I think that we are in very tough times right now. And while I think that there are some people who always have an underlying uh, angst around uh, uh, people who have a lot of wealth and don't appear to be using that wealth or people feel like they can't access that kind of wealth themselves or in their families, that in these particular times, and then when you see this big extravagant peen going into a space along with the encampments, mm. you know, I think that people are hurting. And right now we can hear each other hurt uh, where a lot of pain used to be private with the internet and with all of the different ways that we communicate, we can see each other's pain and we start to get a groundswell. I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. I think that we're going to feel this for a while. I'm not one to say there's a new normal because I think as soon as this is over, we will gr gradually creep back into our old behaviors and patterns. But I, I really do think that the biggest reason we're seeing what we're seeing now is the information is accessible. There is a lot of pain, there's a lot of wealth, and there's a lot of poverty. And uh, it is uh, easy to look at the other outside of ourselves and say, what is our role? But if we haven't put our mask on, and I mean that literally and figuratively, it'll be very difficult to find any kind of ease or peace with the current environment that we're living in. We have to get comfortable accepting what is, and then be on the fight and on the journey for what we want to be.
I'm going to attempt to wrap a really nice bow around this. But earlier, there was a quote that you provided um, that said that when we are hungry or when we run out of food, that's I'll, I'll paraphrase it. So I'll say this, that when we're out of food, when we're hungry, that we'll eat the rich. And I see this as as a, as a restaurant. And it's if I if I'm in a restaurant and I'm not that hungry and I see the table next to me get food. I don't really care. I'm fine. I'm not that hungry. I'm sufficiently fed. But when I'm starving, I've been in the restaurant for a few hours and you just walked in and they bring all the food to your table and not mine. That's when I'm upset. That's when I'm I'm angry. That's when I'm really smelling and smelling the food and figuring out like, hey, like something's not right here. I think in terms of how we feel about billionaires, we're in the situation where a lot of us are starving. A lot of us don't have the basic resources, yet we see people do all these extravagant things. And at what feels like my expense, and in some cases, it, it literally is like you work at Amazon and you can't use a restroom and you're not being paid enough and you can't pay your rent. But the guy you work for is in space and he has one hundred and ninety three <laughs> billion dollars. You're you gonna feel a certain type yeah, of way. That's, right? that's some real talk here. Kevin. Oh, yeah, it's like. <laughs> Like you got the money. Like literally. there's literally, I did the math. There's 800,000, close to 800,000 people that work at Amazon. He can pay a hundred thousand dollars for every one and still have $80 billion left. Like that's, bro, that's a lot. Like you, I shouldn't have to suffer that way. But the reason I, I would feel that way is because I don't have my basic needs met. And I think that's just a testament to how we should function as a society that there should be a living wage. We should all be able to have food and clothes and our basic needs met and everybody would be fine. If you want to strive more and become a millionaire and all that kind of stuff, you, you, are, you can do that, but you have to have those basic needs met. And when they don't, that's when you're going to start to feel this type of pressure, when you're going to see these type of complaints, and when you start to see society fracture in the way that it is. So I think the entire conversation is about why do you feel this way? I feel this way because X, Y, and Z, these basic needs aren't being met. I can't get a house. People are overbidding. Like, that's that's the issue. And we have to come back to those issues and figure out how do we solve them? Is it the elimination of billionaires? I don't think that's necessarily the answer. Is it more taxation? Is it better funding? All you know, It's a combination of those things. But the, the premise of it, the answer to that is, as a society, every single person should be able to have their absolute most basic needs met. And until that is, is solved, then we're, we're going to continue to have these types of conversations and this type of angst against the very wealthy among us. Absolutely. And Kevin, this is why the conversation around universal basic income is getting so much traction yep. here mm-hmm. in the States, right? And, and the thing is, and, and you put that beautifully, the restaurant analogy, write that down. That is a beautiful analogy. And it's absolutely a very clear and easy way for people to understand why this is such a big deal now. Now, one of the things that we can also do is we can learn about what our money scripts are, right? We can, you, it's free, you go to your, your mental wealth com and fill that thing out and understand what do you believe about money? What do you think it's going to do for you? And how do you then align what you do with what matters most to you? So we can talk about this till we're blue in the face. I get a lot of conversations where people will say, well, Sandra, you know, with this level of poverty, you're not going to financially coach somebody out of an oppressive system. That's true. But you know what else I'm not going to do? I'm not going to sit on the sidelines and say, okay, well, let's hope that the system gets better. So you're not experiencing poverty. We have to experience our own financial revolution. 
We have to do that for ourselves, our families, and our communities. And it's not an easy thing to do, but it's absolutely possible. And you know, those of you who do this work for a living, we know that it's possible. And until we're able to do those kinds of things for ourselves and understand our why and align our behavior with our values, we're always going to be at that table feeling like somebody else is getting fed and we're not. We know that threshold of money buying happiness is about $75,000 a year, right? That's the point where happiness no longer increases with wealth, right? But the fact is, there are so many people, we have people down here in, in, in California, you could be a, a nurse working at Stanford, living in a van outside of the hospital. And that's what people are tired of now. I want to go a different way with this last question that I posed. I used to live in Europe. I, I lived in France for a minute and I've lived in Asia as a kid and um, I have a lot of friends who live in Europe. And I think that there is a piece to this conversation that um, is really important to consider, which is American capitalism is a certain kind of beast, right? When you talk to people in Europe and other places, even people who would literally be fascists, they are bemused and amused by all of the things that we're roadblocked on that are just considered a standard quality of life, like a standard of living, a basic standard of living in terms of just law and rules around how people are treated, vacation time, that kind of thing. In the U.S., I think part of why we're so angry is we don't even have a, a minimum federal amount of vacation time. It's just a, like people don't even know that. They think that the two-week vacation is like a law. It is not. It is a suggestion that businesses may or may not say yes to. And so I think at the, the root of it all is we're just mad that there is a basic standard of living and quality of life that across the board, we do not have. And when COVID hit, interestingly enough, we also experienced a big thing that everyone else in the world for the most part has, which is time freedom. And so billionaires, amplify the conversation because they're going to space, they're traveling, they're on their mega boats. And we can't even take our kids to the doctor without being like, please, sir, can I please take my kid to the dentist? Because I, I just need to do that. We have to beg for the time. So I think on a, on a very basic level, we are very, we are right to be angry because we haven't, we don't even have the legislative power behind us to, to the legislative rights behind us to do some really basic standard of living things, quality care to take care of, care of ourselves because American capitalism wrapped around racism is such a thing that people don't even want us to have basic rights. I'm just saying. Yeah, you well, know. now now you're trying to drop into the union conversation because we the few things that we do have, we wouldn't have, you know, if not for the work that the unions had done. And, and if you think about it, I think the current statistics are that there is no city, there's no place in the United States where someone living on federal, uh, the federal minimum wage could rent a two bedroom apartment. Cost $2,000 minimum here, so no, they couldn't. Right now, this year, Denver's minimum wage is 1477 
and we'll go up to 1588 next year. And that's not enough to, to support people in the city of Denver. Yeah. Poverty level in San Francisco for a family of four is 120,000 a year. You guys, I loved having this conversation with you. I don't, we didn't solve anything, but I think we did. I'm thinking a lot about what you've shared and I don't know that this conversation will change anyone's mind. I'm looking forward to people emailing me with their thoughts. But again, I'm still a little neutral on billionaires, but I personally do think they have a societal obligation more than the average bear. So with that being said, if you guys could share who you are and what you do again, where we can find you, that would be wonderful. Michelle, thanks so much. And Kevin, I love being on this with you. Um, We're going to have to take this show on the road. Um, I'm I'm Sandra Davis. I'm in Northern California. I'm a financial educator and coach. Uh, The best way to find me is Sage Money on uh, Instagram. uh, And also I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, And the main thing is that if being a financial coach is something that you want to be, that's what I train people to do. And I train financial planners to actually be able to connect with people because it's so much, there's so much more to what we care about than the money itself. It's a much bigger picture. Thank you, Michelle. This was delightful. I loved having you on here. Kevin? Yes, thank you for having me. I definitely enjoyed the conversation. My name is Kevin Matthews II. I'm the founder of Building Brand, the author of From Burning to Blueprint, Rebuilding Black Wall Street After a Century of Silence. You can find me on all things social media at Building Brand, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and whatever else is out there. And um, love to continue the conversation. Thank you guys so much. And uh, sitting you millionaire dreams. (laughs) I'll take that. Ha, ha, ha.